From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. Some combination of the four of us are here every week. This week, you got all of us, at least for some of the show. Eric Bradlow's here. Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen is here. And this is Cade Massey. We've been doing this for coming up on eight years, just a few months away from our eight-year anniversary. We have been coming to you via Zoom for the last almost two years. And we're going to do that again today. We're, we're, we're out of the studio. We had a little, a little moment in the studio. We'll get back there as often as we can, but it's going to be few and far between. We've got people in various places. We've got, uh, we've got everybody for the first half hour. We'll talk about COVID as we usually do. Gentlemen, Omicron continues to dominate the press. A bit of medical uh, news here and there. I'm curious across this whole COVID world, what has caught your eye? Well, uh, I'll jump in and go directly to Omicron, which apparently no one pronounces properly. Um, yeah, so we just, we'll just call I'm it. Just adopting. It's like you got to, you got to, you know, when you're when you're in New York, it's Houston, it's not Houston, and so people are going to say Omicron. We're going to say Omicron. Well, I'll just call it B.1.1.529. Oh yeah, that's, that? there you go, Adi. There you go. <laughs> no confusion there. Um, the uh, so one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how contagious it is and how. Uh, how deadly it or how what its morbidity is and the contagiousness looks pretty intense although obviously there's lots of confounders like South Africa doesn't have very much vaccination particularly among young people so that's a nice substrate for rapid transmission Um, so but it does look pretty contagious and Israeli uh, medical officials have been pointing out that it looks to be about 30 percent more contagious than Delta and Delta was very contagious. So that doesn't look good. On the other hand, South Africa seems to be reporting um, that it's more, it certainly appears to be much more moderate. It's Mm -hmm. all anecdotal, um, but that is absolutely completely as one would expect in evolutionary processes like this should be more contagious, less deadly. Um, And in fact, one of the things that they admitted is that they test everyone who goes into the hospital and 70% of the people who tested, who are make up hospitalizations are hospitalizations with COVID, not hospitalizations for COVID, right. which is a gigantic difference. And there just seems to be a very tiny handful of people who are hospitalized with, with Omicron 529, whatever you want to call it, that are, that are actually ill because of COVID or hospitalized because of it. That right. is quite optimistic. Again, that seems to be corroborated by other places. Um, there is, of course, unofficial reports that, that vaccinated people should be just as protected as they are now, which means very little protection when it comes to actual disease, lots of protection when it comes to severity. Hold that on. Very a, little is a strong statement. Well, very, I, unfortunately, I actually was I was pouring over that data um, when I say very little, very rapidly decaying. Right. So yeah, there you go. vaccines okay. just do not provide much more than six percent, six months worth of immunity by six months. That immunity is down to uh, uh, just a few, you know, 10, 20 percent more, maybe 30 percent more. But it okay. starts out pretty good. So it starts out like pretty good. Ninety percent like uh, Israel's great data on boosters. If you have had a booster, you're about 10 times less likely to get an active case and about 400 times less likely to have a, a, a serious case. 
Um, but that decays, you know, by six months, uh, most of that benefit is gone. You still have the protection from serious illness, but not from active cases. And Adi, that decline, that's kind of a smooth decline is the way to think about it. From Well, I've seen some of that data. It, it, people have different graphs. Sometimes they don't, they don't fit anything other than a smooth decline, right? So, yeah. you know, you built it into the model. Um, uh, others would argue that it should go down not quite as smoothly. Um, that's, those are things that we have to be uncertain about. Well, the reason I'm asking is because you hear these six-month numbers, and I don't think people should think about having great protection for six months and it goes off a cliff. That's just very unlikely. To be I doubt right. it. I think it just sort of, you know, trends. Our earliest data from Israel were like 100 times. I mean, really, almost nobody with two vaccines and a booster were getting COVID. Um, I, of course, got COVID with two vaccines and a booster. And, and, I, and I immediately went, you know, these numbers aren't right. And now they're republishing it. And it's like one in 10. <laughs> okay. All so, right. Uh, so I had, a, I had a, a metric question, metrics question. Maybe what we should rep- be reporting, Adi, I think you'd be happy with this. Why don't we report the kind of net number of vaccinations? So what I mean by that is, if you've been vaccinated a year ago and you haven't been vaccinated, gotten a booster, you get a 0.1. You're not a one. You're a point one. That's the that's the efficacy. Why don't we actually compute a net number? Assuming we had good data. Adi, you'd be for that, right? Let's compute the net. I think you're talking about expected value or something. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. like an expected value. And by 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 we you mean society and the meat and and no, I mean we can't even aggregate whole numbers. And now you (laughs) want us to No, I want us to do it, Shane. I Uh, want us to talk about the fact that we're vaccine yeah. equivalents. Vaccine yeah, equivalents. I like that yeah. there. That's a nice, sophisticated term. Vaccine <laughs> equivalents. I think that would be a good thing to yeah, do. I, I like it, actually, because right, you're saying, well, you know, what percentage we've been kicking this number on what percentages of 65 plus in the U.S. are vaccinated? Well, uh, the covid website still claims ninety nine point nine percent. And we believe it's more like ninety five or ninety four something. So I actually think what's it's the, lower. Um, we, I, I like that. to think okay. we at Wharton Moneyball were broke this story because we've been talking about it now for three weeks. Um, a bunch of news agencies are starting to cover oh, this exact phenomenon. Okay. But also, Adi, out. remember, when did those people yeah, get so vaccinated? I'm just using, that, I'm the just, net I'm, number for that group might be 60% now, right, 50%. Right. But th- those numbers were never that. And basically, your basic opinion polls are turning up about 85 to 90% okay. of, six, uh, of 65 and older. That would be a, a shit ton of bias to go from 99.9 to 80 to 85. 80 it's to remarkable. 90. That's just not plausible. But, but but Eric, I I love I love this concept. It's just it's just it's great sports analytics applied to this thing, and also it allows you to integrate the two stats that are kicking around, which is how many people are double vaccinated, and, and what percentage are double vaccinated, and what percentage are boosted. Your vaccine equivalent number would integrate those two things. Absolutely, and give you just an overall Definitely. coverage, effective coverage right now. Then the other thing you asked, what caught my eye? I'm just wondering. I mean, I'm sure all of you have seen this. More and more data is coming out that, you know, it's not huge numbers, but not huge in terms of difference in efficacy. But the Moderna vaccine appears to be more efficacious. We've so, been hearing that for a long time. What do, what do we say? What do we well, believe? I saw a New England edge. Journal of Medicine story. I mean, well, this and, is- and it's, it's also worth noting before we launch into it that the Moderna vaccine kind of has changed in the sense that the Moderna vaccine, when it was first given, given out, was at a higher dosage than they're giving out, for example, as a booster right now. Is that not correct? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Like I thought it was, I thought they have the dose, literally the, have the strength of it. I okay. See. So we've known for a long time that Moderna is better. It's stronger and it definitely has much more likely to give you a short-term illness post-vaccination. 
And it now seems to be more likely to produce a, a strong heart inflammation and myocarditis, particularly in, in men 20 to 29. So much so that actually the Canadians kind of warn a little bit that they, they, they want boys 20 to 29 to really think about whether they should even be getting Moderna because it does have that, you know, huh. they have almost no chance of a, of a, a serious outcome anyway. You don't want to, you want, you don't want to do harm, right? So um, this is, this is, seems to be a bigger effect with Moderna, but even earliest Cotter, I think it was Cotter or was it the Emirates or one of the Emirates or whatever you pronounce the, uh, these countries, they had substantial numbers of people with both Pfizer and Moderna, and they reported far fewer breakthrough infections with Delta with the Moderna people than with the Pfizer. Um, you know, lots, as I mentioned before on the show, many members of my extended family, children, uh, sisters, uh, nephews have all had COVID. My, my sister, Yale, had Moderna. She had COVID, not a symptom, nothing. Um, that's a pure anecdote. I think it's starting to be verified. So my, my question, but, but you started well, my out, question, sorry, go ahead. What clarification? You started out by saying that there was greater quantity in the Moderna. Just more, so how much just, of it is the technology and how much of it is the quantity? I think the technology is exactly the same. So, oh gosh. And so it really is just quantity and, and like the, the uh, distance, the distance between. I mean, it's not exactly the same. There are kind of genetic variations. Well, I think they pick between a the strip, two, right? Well, so, I mean, right. So, so I'm right. Right. So it's, but the MRNA technology is the same. They, they have a different, yes, it, it, but it's not, it's not the exact same kind of biochemically or biologically. Yeah. That's right? what because I meant. I was using technology kind of. Yeah. So my, my, my question as a business question or a societal health question as a result of this, given Adi's comment though, about um, side effects, will we end up with a simple decision tree? Like if you're above 30 and you're female, you should get Moderna. If you're this, you should get that. Like, because at some point, if there were no side effects, Adi, you agree Moderna would be, at the, from what we know now, everyone should get Moderna, right? Unless the mix and match is the better approach. All you right. got to well, throw that out there, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we've been talking about that for six months. I was no. the one that brought up, if I had an op- matter of fact, I probably, now the more I thought about it, I probably should have gotten Moderna as a booster. I didn't. Uh, I but did. I, I could have, but that would have been a, I, I, I have a sense. I told no. you I wanted an obstacle course for the virus. Right. That's right. J and J is reporting that they offer better protection when combined with Pfizer than Pfizer with Pfizer. That's oh, what they're now. Of course it's their own doctors and scientists reporting. Yeah, that. That's a but marketing, it's true. marketing but it might be true. I mean, you know, so I think the ensemble is, is definitely the right, right approach. But uh, you have to put these in perspective. I mean, the, the myocarditis is like one in 10,000, <laughs> you know, and about one in 20 of those dies. I mean, Israel had a death with a, with a young man with a, with a myocarditis. You know, that's, you know, there's a million people in that age group had got the shot or 500,000, 800,000, whatever it was. That's, that's small, but their outcomes are, sm- I mean, the, these are rare, they're rare outcomes. What I do think is that there should be, should be some bifurcation in terms of comorbidity, in terms of what you may potentially be doing when you're young and healthy is different from when you're older and not so healthy, in particular, when it comes to treatments, that's the next real, real stage of this is so with vaccinate vaccines, you got, okay, you're going to, you're not going to get the people who aren't taking it to take it. It's a large fraction of society. It just is what it is at this point. That's my general view. The right next step is how do we treat people who are ill even treat people who are ill who were vaccinated because quite, I mean, elderly people can get quite sick and yep. people with comorbidities can get quite sick. And uh, Mer- uh, Merck is now getting approval. I think they already got approval. Yeah, it got approval. Uh, 
I think yeah, I so saw that on can, your sheet. Can, here. can we unpack again? that a little bit? What's the there was a controversy around that because the vote was not that strong in favor of approval. So what was it that kept it from being more enthusiastically approved? Does I, I would imagine it's just the ratio of benefits to potential side effects, right? So we um, the there are potential side effects, but the I you know it's at I think they've reported fifty percent efficacy. It might ter- turn out to be a little bit lower, and so I think that's that was the challenge. Uh, that, that that's why the vote was thirteen to ten. But you know there is a. I'm just wondering from a lives saved perspective, is there any chance? that a weekly efficacious pill could cost lives. And let me say why. Someone's, I, you don't mean weekly every week. You mean not no, no, strong. We, W-E-A-K. Yeah, mm-hmm. not, not particularly efficacious. Mm-hmm. Someone <laughs> says, look, there's a pill. If I get it, I get it. Big deal. Yeah, well, the vaccine's 10 times more effective, you fool. Get the vaccine. And if you do, you know, so people are like, I don't need the vaccine. They got a pill just like I knew they would. Is there any chance that there are lives that could get cost from people that don't understand what statistical probability and efficacy mean? And that 50% is way different than a vaccine at 90, 95%, or as Adi said, even for death, might be 99.9%. I mean, I, I, I tend to have Adi's kind of view, very relatively simplistic view of the world, and that there's the people who get have gotten vaccinated and there's the people who are going to refuse to be vaccinated no matter what um and the people i I don't think you're going to fool or trick like the people who are okay with getting vaccinated will probably continue to get vaccinated like as booster you know um the people who aren't are the kind of i think it's could be only positive benefits to them right because they would not get the vaccine no matter what you know so they, they might use a pill of course, particularly because someone who gets a vaccine isn't going to get vaccinated is currently healthy where they're making that decision. When you're asked to take a pill, you're yeah. sick. <laughs> and all of a sudden the world changes when you're when you're not feeling well. Um, so another that, another variation on it is that people will take more risk if they think that there are ways to. That's to another possibility. And yep. if they if they overestimate the efficacy of the treatment, then they would likely it just stands to reason that they would take too much risk. Well, I, I think we're 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 erring on the side of not of not enough risk. So I would argue that that could bring us back to balance. Well, say more about that, Adi. You've been you've been on and off about this. Uh, yeah, since I mean, the I beginning, think that, but hold on, it's it's a little rich coming from a guy who got a breakthrough case from some of his risk. No, I know, I know. It's I, it's yeah. So I feel like pretty pretty comfortable myself, right? <laughs> right. Um, so I, I mean, I look at this. Today was an announcement from uh, from the I guess the Surgeon General or uh, from the Biden administration talking about you know runaway mental health crisis among young people, the continuing the sense of uh, the lack of normalcy, particularly among those for whom it's it's never been a particular threat, is continuing to weigh on society. And we've got to get to the point where we return to a sense of normalcy as quickly as possible. Um, and and that's just not happening, and particularly in certain communities. And yeah. a, a pill could bring us back to more, more quickly back to a sense of normalcy. I mean, and, we, we and keep I, talking and I, about this, right? About it being like the flu, and it's just another respiratory virus. Um, and I remember, I, I don't want to. I'd like to talk about this because there was a, a, a big article in the Times this week about long haul COVID, um, and that seems to be one of the biggest obstacles to getting back to the normal is. People are being essentially afraid to get COVID, even though they're not going to they know they're not going to die from it or have a very, very small probability of dying from it because they're concerned of the long term health consequences. 
So potentially a pill could could have a you know big impl- implication not only on the vaccine, not on the unvaccinated, but on the unva- on the vaccinated, because yeah, it makes your case just much more mild. Mm-hmm. And I, and I mm-hmm. think as far as kind of public policy and public health, I mean, already we're seeing as we transition into this endemic kind of more COVID world, there's a mix, and it's very frustrating. We don't know how much of the public policy do we get that we get is actual public health versus public health theater, right? You know, I mean, I mean, you know, there there is a lot of public health theater out there. I I, for example, think like uniform kind of bans on people traveling into the U.S. from certain countries where Omicron has suddenly popped up. That's public health theater. There's not much public health behind that. And governments, of course, are going to continue to have public health theater. I mean, you know, 9-11 was 20 years ago and we still have a lot of security theater at the airports. It just never goes away. Right. And so maybe having a pill, having having actually things, you know, where people feel more safe allows governments to maybe loosen up a little bit, too. Well, the political, you know, it's it's politics are the public policy is where politics are most apparent. But we talk about this with even sports decisions. I mean, there are political elements to these decisions that lead decision makers away from what seems to be optimal and it's no i mean sports is a great example where it's entirely theater or almost all theater right i mean the nfl's kind of enforcement and non-enforcement of i'm I'm talking more covid stuff i'm talking more just about political considerations that push decisions away from optimal um in, in in any number of situations all right anything else on the on the on the pandemic side of things that's interesting right now anything hot what what's a question y'all are most interested in right now what are we going to learn over the next few weeks that you think is most important well i mean i think there's a couple things we're going to learn we're going to learn whether or not these the the i think it's the the pfizer pill gets a uh gets approval which apparently seems to be far more effective than the merck pill i'll also put into context here i'm actually working with with David Fagenbaum's group here at Penn to, to, to think about these things. But there are two over-the-counter treatments. They're not over-the-counter. They're pre-approved. They're off-label uses. Two drugs. There's the fluoxamine and there's the budenazide, which is the steroid inhaler, which I used, which each of them looks to be about 30% effective at preventing hospitalization separately. That's what the Merck pill is advertised to do. That may explain your 13 to 10, Right. We're approving some expensive drug that really isn't any better than than, than I uh, see. to 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 uh, already approved, well studied, no side effect um, drugs that are out there in the market and mm-hmm. that are generally not known. I mean, really not known at all. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's the monoclonal the monoclonal the infusion. So so if you're going to replace the monoclonal infusions with a pill, it should be as effective as the infusion. And infusion is pretty good. It's about fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So. That that I think we'll see we'll be seeing some data on that coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, um, uh, you know Omicron's the big deal. I mean, whether we'll find out within a month, I, 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 early January, we're going to know for real whether this really is super contagious and whether it is a lot less less dangerous. And, and Adi, the time is going to do what for us? We, it's partly because other countries are collecting data and we get to free ride on their data. So over time, they'll have more data. But is it really because there's a lag? in consequences that we have to wait and see someone has to get this and then 
be at risk of going to the hospital, which is a couple of weeks, have to be at risk of dying, which is another couple of weeks. So we just need a longer window. What What is it that's driving the time frame? That's a great question. Could you think that South Africa has 16,000 cases a day now? They should be able to answer this question. But uh, I mean, I, it, it, it does take the extra level of te- like actually sequencing. Like, like it's not just testing, t- cases popping up. They have to be sequenced, right? And I mean, I think there's both time and expense involved with that. Right. Um, and on a way that like, you know, I mean, right. So we 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 don't know how many of those are going to be Omicron, for example. I mean, the other the other mm-hmm. question is, will it take over other countries? Um, you know, I think it's uh, I think that it, that was overrated in the beginning and it could just burn out in other places. Mm-hmm. I, I think we'll mm-hmm. re- really will know this whole process just seems to just always take longer than we wanted to. Mm. So I've come to so, price that in. Which which countries do you think are the best to watch Who, whose data will we see the uk has these good panels israel for a while you know that's last summer they were the ones on the cutting edge of all of this is are there any other countries we should be thinking about or paying attention to or expecting to get data from uh now the difference is of course is because they have different population bases so south africa has so little vaccine vaccination mm-hmm. so can we make an inference about a country with very little vaccination about a country that does um uk has lots of vaccination but little boosting Israel has tons of vaccination and a lot of boosting. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what you, what are you going to, you know, you got to put it all together with all the appropriate kind of. I feel like a lot of, can we build a, I'm, can we build a synthetic country? Like they build synthetic states for these political. Germany countries? seems to be. <laughs> no, I was about to suggest Germany is certainly getting slammed by COVID right now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, presumably is collecting data and in, in a more, my prior is that they're collecting data in a, <laughs> And analyzing it in a in a, in a, in a systematic more, way, in a more comprehensive and systematic way than we are here in America. Gee, where'd you get that prior? <laughs> Life experience, just, baby. I, I was just wondering if you know a thought experiment. If you had to, let's imagine you could optimally allocate a fixed number of doses. So you could either have, you know, I'll make this up: uh, a thousand people vaccinated twice. That's obviously two thousand doses. Or you could have 667 people vaccinated three times, meaning with a booster. What, from a policy perspective, or even from a societal perspective, what would be preferable? Like, should, the, should we be focused? Kate asked what we're more interested in. Should we be focused on getting the remaining 30 to 40% of the U.S. population vaccinated, which, by the way, seems, if you guys are right, like a, a you know, pretty hard effort? Or should we be focused on getting those same shots, which would be 60% if you multiply by two, and getting people boosted? Because there would be, matter of fact, it might be more, have higher ROI than trying to get the 30% naysayers to actually get vaccinated. I mean, I don't think, I I think if you think about COVID as a global problem, we're not yet at that trade-off because I think the obvious ROI, I think, in my mind, is getting like the the vast, you know, all the sort of situation, like all the people globally who want vaccines have not yet gotten them. Right. And that's obviously like as far as kind of like, you know, the substrate for new variants, I think the ROI on getting people at least will take it vaccinated first is is, is kind of in my mind obvious. But I agree, like once, once that happens, the trade off between trying to kind of push people, you know, push people from zero to one that really don't want to go there as opposed to devoting it like putting it towards two to three, especially with the, if, if they're going to like kind of run out in terms of efficacy, I think I would lean towards, you know, put like letting, letting, letting the people that actually want vaccines to get as boost as possible. 
it's a little bit of a funny question, Eric, because if we could I meant just, it as a funny question because we no, don't no, really no, have a choice. But no, I, meant I, just, I, I, I don't mean that as a criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting because if if we could if we could force people to take a, a booster, I mean, if, if we could force those who don't want vaccination to get a vaccination, that would be what we would almost certainly do. So in the absence of that, what decision variable are we really talking about? I mean, there is there is decision variables in terms. I mean, there's more, you know, the government needs to know there's, where to allocate their marketing money. Marketing, and, and kind that of promotion, like yeah, marketing, promotion. And marketing yeah, yeah. and promotion. And I think, sure. you know, uh, so far, you know, it, I mean, I, I, I would, I'm also very interested kind of from a marketing perspective, how effective sort of like, you know, their various kind of promotion strategies have been about getting people vaccinated. We've certainly talked about that a lot in the show all well, along, I, I, but whether that would, whether it's better to just sort of target the population that's already pliable, I guess, I don't, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I, if you're going to talk about return on investment, it, governmental return on investment, it's got to be in, in readily available rapid tests at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, I think the best thing you can do to return to normalcy and do some prevention is get people to get tested. So many people get moderate to asymptomatic COVID. They just go out to their parties without bothering. If you have it, if you have 20 in your closet, you take one out whenever you go and, and God, that would be fantastic. Well, you know, I, I, th- I, I agree, but I also think it's a little unrealistic. In fact, I think the, if we're going to play that game, I would go all the way back to your claim about the treatment being the best thing. What I really enjoyed about your musings there were these knock-on consequences. So you yeah. said, perhaps if people knew there was a pill back in their medicine cabinet that could prevent them from having any severe um, conditions, they'd be more willing to go back to normalcy. And yeah. I think that's much more realistic human behavior than to have a closet full of um, instant tests that they, that they take before they go out. Right. And then, and then Shane had the other knock on consequence was maybe we'll have less political theater by our policymakers. If they know that there's this effic- efficacious treatment available to everybody. Kate, can I ask you a question? I read or listened to a, a conversation in a podcast with a Johns Hopkins physician who made the, uh, made the point that I think I knew, and we all probably knew, but most people's calibration on the consequences of COVID is off by orders of magnitude. So if you ask people, what, is, what do they think their chances is of being hospitalized? What do they think their chances are dying? It's off terribly. Now, I'll, I'll, as a probabilist and a statistician, I'll point out, people are terrible at everything. It's not just COVID. It's, it's just about <laughs> well, everything. They're, especially, they're especially bad with small probabilities, Holly. Um, but and I especially how small probabilities of, of risk. Uh, plays out into the the role of treatments and the role and getting back to normal could we actually convince people or is that just simply not possible oh interesting so you're saying look well one of the small probabilities of very bad things get more weight than they should um at least it seems that way um and so you're saying if you can mitigate that this the magnitude of that negative outcome then maybe they wouldn't be as distorted as much seems seems reasonable yeah and, and i think it's sort of like it's unlikely we'll probably be able to kind of really i mean i have trouble myself with very small probabilities but sure. what, what at least you can do is do rankings right like you know like mm-hmm. the people who are driving around for like four hours on the suburbs trying to find that first shot you know that first vaccine shot we're probably at more risk just from traffic accidents than they were anything else like if we can kind of start putting <laughs> covid on the scale of like actually you know 
uh, you know, the, your, your, your current risk of driving COVID in the next month is the same as if you drive like for two hours a day or something like that. That might help to at least put it on the right scale for people. Right. I think the, the, the context, if we can contextualize these things or, or com- compare them to more commonly understood probabilities and then decision making would improve for sure. All right, guys, uh, enough on COVID for this week. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q2 now. Here on Sirius XM, we're doing two hours of sports analytics. This is the second quarter. You guys can jump in here in a way. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at W Moneyball is our handle on Twitter at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests up there. We tweet periodically. We love getting ideas, questions, complaints, whatever you got at W Moneyball on Twitter. You can also send us an email. Email is a mailbag for us. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We get as many of those on, on the show as possible. We read them all. We're always interested. You guys send us some terrific stories and terrific questions. We love hearing from you. Please drop us those emails. Fellas, we are done with the regular season and championship weekend in college football. Bowls are set. Playoff is set. After all the speculation, we know that it is possible for a group of five team to make the playoffs. How did you feel about the weekend? How did you consume it? What are your thoughts on the way this thing got done? My first reaction was relating the Alabama Georgia game to a, you know, a what we call a paired comparison model, which means Alabama has some strength, and this is what many rating systems estimate, like Massey Peabody and others. Of course, Georgia has some strength, but typically these probabilities have to do with the difference of strength. So as I was watching the Alabama Georgia game, I was asking myself from a statistical perspective, which of the two is true? Is Alabama much better than we thought, or is Georgia just much worse than we thought? And if that were the only data point we had, we can't really answer that because what matters is the difference of the two. So I was just wondering, Cade, from the – I've asked you this question every year at the end of the college football season. As I remember, I'm just doing this from memory, like Alabama in past years has been like a 30 on some Massey Peabody scale. Like where are we now? Because we have to have time series data to answer this paired and repeat measures and compared uh, time series to do this. Which of the two is true? Was Alabama better than we thought or was Georgia worse? Going into the weekend? Going into the weekend. Well, it would, in order for me to answer that, we would have to have updated Massey Peabody numbers. And that is not something that I have today. So I don't know which one moved I have more to admit, is though, one I'll way just, of thinking about just it. Just the way I thought about it was, um, I think Georgia was just worse than I thought. I don't think Alabama, Alabama was good, but they weren't like all-time great in the game. Georgia just looked, didn't look great. They're and you've, and, and well, you've been talking, you've been banging your drum about how mediocre Alabama has been looking for several weeks going into this as well. So, you know, I, you're, you're my, my, my your prior going into that game was that Alabama was not very good. That or, is true. Right? That is my strong prior going into the game. So I, I just want to, I want to, I want to note a couple of things here. One, you talked about there being a power ranking. There's kind of a fundamental quality of each of these teams, but for any given fundamental quality, you get a draw of performance on a given Saturday. And so there's a distribution 
that is produced around that fundamental quality. And so it's not just you're asking the question of was Alabama underrated, was Georgia overrated? Fine. But here's another question. How representative were the draws we got from those two teams? I, well, let me just say, if that's yeah. a representative draw, meaning I forget if Alabama won by 18, was it 42-24, something like that, or whatever the, whatever the final exact score was. That's, I think if you drew simulations prior to the game starting, that would have been in the extreme tail of the distribution. Extreme tail, one of the two teams winning by 18, 20 well, points, whatever the Al- final. Al- Alabama, especially. Well, certainly, right. More even so Alabama since Georgia was favored by six and a half in the game. Yeah. So, I yeah, mean, it's a- the other thing that complicates it beyond, I mean, you, I think, Kate, you're, you've got the central point, which is that this is one realization from a yeah. distribution of possible outcomes. And so that's, you know, we don't necessarily want to take too much for that. But also the, the other thing worth considering is, you know, that it could be that two teams uh, just match up in a particular way. That's not like, you know, so when you say Alabama is better than Georgia, Georgia's better than Alabama, you know, the trouble with that kind of match, that paired comparison is that it's not necessarily generalizable even to how they would pay in expectation against other teams. Well, well, that's good. That's more true in theory than it is in practice. And it's more true in some sports than it is in football. We, I know we, with enough data and, and, and sophisticated enough analysis, you could probably find some, some interactions like that. You're basically saying some interactions. You need like the strength of the running game versus the strength of the other side's run defense. Yeah. Kind of I mean, but yeah, I wasn't necessarily going to grind down. I, I was even just sort of, sort of strong defense versus strong offense. I well, mean, it's hard to level. That's right. And I'm, and I can report to you that at least when Rufus has poked around looking for that kind of thing, it's really hard to find in football. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing people talk about in basketball as being really important. Like matchups matter more in basketball stands to reason. You can isolate scores. It's, small, it's fewer guys on the court. That kind when, of thing. when Rufus just, looked for that, though, I assume he was looking and expecting across all teams. Like you know, it's kind of like looking for clutch by looking for looking across all players. Which how else would you do it, right? In order to have enough data, I'm just saying among top teams, it, this thing could exist. It would be very hard to detect and yeah, prove. That, but it could yeah, exist. that's right. So that that's a that's a good point because we're certainly going to be looking for average effects. You, so you, you model something and look for the average effect. And you're saying, well, you might look at the tails and especially relevant tail are the best teams that mat- that happen to play each other. But color me skeptical, I guess is the bottom line. I'm skeptical that it matters as much as, as certainly as much as sometimes sometimes people talk about it mattering in football. In football. Could I can I ask a, a modeling question about that's relevant to this conversation? I think when we model in baseball, you have to model pitching, you have to model uh, hitting. It's essentially offense, defense. When you're making a forecast, they both mostly count equally. In football, is there a, is it equal or is it, do you put more weight on your offensive assessments? In other words, you have to ask yourself, which one do you know more reliably? I mean, obviously you look how many points yeah. you gave up historically. You can look how many points you scored historically. And now you want to make the forecast let's take away the matchup stuff and, and argue that doesn't matter. Uh, what would you, what, would you weight them equally or would you weight the offense more because it's more reliable or what, how does that kind of work? By reliable, out? you really mean more predictive, right? Yes. That's what I mean. More, more, well, or consistent, I guess, or something. Well, I'm, I'm, let me just say, you got to weight them. Let's just say it's a weighted, weighted average. You want to do the best forecasting. Is it yeah, equal well, weights okay. or is it, then, is then it predictive? So it matters. It, it uh, The reliability of it is one part of that and the other's importance presumably combined to well, produce I, I believe the predictive, that if you, the predictive weight 
I mean, the, the points you give up are points. They cost just as much as points you gain, right? So, but so the, I mean, if you, if you build these predictive models, you, you end up and you have say, you know, the rushing, the rushing game and the passing game on offense, the rushing game and the passing game on defense. And you've got a few other variables in there and you're doing everything out of sample and you're asking what is most predictive. They certainly have different size coefficients and they, and they have difference. And the, those differences are different at different points in the season. Yeah. Some grow more steeply than others. You learn more. So yes, there is, there is different there. They're, they're different. They have different importance in these predictive models. And part of that comes from a different reliability. So, and, and then across seasons, you have the same big question about reliability. And in general, I think people find that offense is more, um, more, sustainable year to year than defense is because wouldn't that explain Alabama's victory? Yeah. So that's, that's, there's, that is one quick story you could tell about that, that Georgia came in with this supposedly legendary defense and then off, you know, clearly they didn't have the QB that Alabama did. They don't have the wide receivers that Alabama did. And Alabama finally put a few pieces together on the offensive side. And that was just more important than the defense was. That's been the story in football in general, the last few years. Um, some people have taken heart in the rise of defenses like Georgia's, and that was certainly a, a um, evidence to the contrary. So, yeah, there's there, there, some people believe that's part of the story out of That's exactly right. Anyone want to tell me how Michigan won? Michigan's, Michigan is just a better team than we thought they were going to be coming into the season. They're finally putting together what people have been waiting for Harbaugh to do since his first season. And it's hard to know exactly why they've always had some talent. They haven't had the talent of some of these other teams. Um, he brought in some different coaches this year. Um, they've, it's going to be fascinating to see him play, see that team go against one of these or both of these big sec teams. I mean, I just Georgia, to so just Georgia to understand, like a, Georgia's favored by eight in the game. Yeah. So this is Michigan's the two seed Georgia's the three and the lines are, you know, like between seven and eight and a half or something like that. So, um, I mean, I hope people are continuing to underestimate Michigan, but they have very different um, they had very different priors coming into the season, so that's still in there. But they have different quality of rosters. Michigan has a high quality roster, but very few teams have the quality of the talent that Georgia does. Georgia's up there with Alabama and Ohio State, and it's a big drop off to everybody else. I think that's an absolutely fascinating game, and. Um... Wow. I mean, again, this gets up to matches. Michigan looked great. Georgia but, did not. I understand it's one game. Um, that's, well, that this seems is, like a, let me just say the following. That seems like a large spread in the sense that it, it probably puts a degree of certainty. Like in, in college football, an eight-point spread would translate to what odds? 70-30? I don't have Something that like off that, the top So, Kate, can I ask you, do you still think, does you still think that Ohio is better than Michigan? If they were going to play again, they'd be favored. Okay. Um, they, they would be. I, yeah. I, if they were going to play 10 games, I don't know. It's probably not a whole lot. But if I had to bet on who would win more out of 10 games, I'd bet on Ohio State for sure. Shane, I just want to point out that people have talked about this Georgia-Michigan game being a matchup problem for Michigan. So Michigan doesn't have the QB that Alabama did. They're not going to be able – people think the weakness of Georgia's defense is their passing defense and so Alabama was able to exploit that Michigan probably not going to be able to exploit it the way Alabama did so from a matchup perspective 
Michigan doesn't look as good against Georgia as Alabama did at least last Saturday. It's well, just, one- you know, it, we also kind of, most people feel that Georgia is probably a better team overall too. So like uh, tr- trying to, again, detect evidence of my kind of matchup That's right. theory That's right. against the background of them just being relatively unequal teams and yeah. the real background of these just being stochastic events, you know, right. that, 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 you yeah. know, among, yeah. among expectations, you know, that's yeah, right. also that's right. you you brought it up Kate. i mean the reality is that bryce young the quarterback for alabama is elite like he i mean <laughs> he looks I agree. pretty good he, he looked, looked pretty, pretty good saturday he, right against a very good defense right. and you're right i i agree with you i actually like michigan's quarterback better than i like georgia's quarterback but i don't like him necessarily enough to be able to exploit georgia's off a uh, defense in the back I mean, it was it was a, a little bit sad watching that game when you're just thinking, you know, I don't know that Georgia has the quarterback to stay in this game. I mean, that's right. the way it felt. That's the way it felt. Seeing them both on the field like that, and I'm I'm I, I don't I don't know that the Michigan quarterback is much closer, I would say, to the Georgia quarterback than, I agree. Alabama, than to Alabama's. Well, what about Cincinnati, Eric? You wanted it for years, and you finally got a Group of Five team in there. You've been kind of up and down on these guys this year, but. They're going against Alabama. That line is pushing two touchdowns, I think. It's right right up next to two touchdowns. Um, but Alabama, other than that Georgia game, they have not looked like the Alabama of old. Do you right. think it's possible that they could just turn it on like that and now be back? Or do you think the first 11, 12 games actually meant something? Which one is the real Alabama? How much do you update based on that one game? I'll say the following. Um, I think Alabama's upside when playing extraordinarily well is higher than I thought it is. Yes, that's what I, that's what I'll say. That's what we saw Saturday. That's what we saw Saturday. We saw, and maybe we saw the tail of the distribution. This is the best Alabama we're ever going to see. But if that Alabama plays, they're winning the national title. Like if they play as well as they played in that game, mm. well, I guarantee you, Cincinnati's not beating them. No shot. Maybe, maybe the Michigan-Georgia winner could beat them. Maybe if Michigan's a little bit better than I thought. But that seemed like a really good team. Offense, defense, that's, that's a really good team. So Eric, since, yeah, are you taking uh, – are you going to give up uh, the points and take Alabama? The problem I have is that Alabama's distribution of performance, in my view, has been very wide. Yeah. If you if I had to bet one of the two, I would take Alabama and give the points. However, I will say I'd be very <laughs> nervous because if I get just the decent Alabama that showed up for the first 11 games, I don't think they're beating Cincinnati by two touchdowns. Yeah. They'll win the game, but they won't right, win so, by so two touchdowns. So what's the probability of you getting the decent versus the great? Is it? Well, I don't know. Is it, this is Kate's question. You just <laughs> yeah. reframed Kate's question. Is it 11 out of 12? Because that's how they played. Or is it the last game? You know, what should it, when it really like, matters, is, Alabama will kick it in. Here's what I'll say the following. You give Nick Saban, what is it, five weeks? When's the game? December is, 31st. No, Four weeks, it, three it, weeks, it, three, it, three and a half three weeks, weeks, whatever it is. Weeks. You give Nick Saban a lot of time and nobody else to focus on. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting nervous. I'm, I'm starting to lean more weight towards Alabama. And of course, that this is something I was going to raise. And this is one of the narratives you'll hear. I mean, of course, he's one, the, probably the best all time coach in college football history. He also has resources. When you say give save in time, he's got a staff of analysts yeah, right. that no other team has. And so their ability to prepare, because this is this is not typical college football preparation. This isn't a week. This isn't even just two weeks. This is like three weeks of focused preparation. I, for that reason, I would lean towards giving the points. But the, the question on the modeling is, is, is as it so often is, fellas, it's about non-stationarity. Do you think that Alabama has like 
figured it out. Like Bryce Young, you know, he was a brand new quarterback this year. He just got better over the course of the season. Now we've got a different Alabama, categorically different Alabama here at the end of the season than we had midseason. Yes. I don't know. They didn't look that different versus Arkansas, LSU, Auburn. and Auburn. They should have lost yeah. that game. Yeah. They didn't look that different against any of those I, teams. I, I I'm not going to put too much weight on one game. But, yes, they looked great in that game. But, again, they should have lost to Auburn the week before. And if they did, I, well, I guess, just correct me, they still would have been in the SEC championship game, correct? Even if they so. had lost I, to Auburn. But, but yeah, and then that, that would have been fascinating. Well, that would have been fascinating. Then they what missed, you, they you would have had Auburn to put Alabama in. You would have had to. to. Be, they have to be in. Two loss Alabama. They'd have to put in two in loss Alabama into that, into yeah. that, even over Notre Dame or whoever was ended up six, was it Oklahoma State or whatever. They'd have to do it. That's what I really wanted to happen. I wanted the committee to put in a two-loss Alabama team. Now I'll just have to wait for another year. <laughs> Come on, man. When are you going to be satisfied? You've been wanting Never. a group of five team. A group no, of five I'm team satisfied. You finally I'm satisfied. got one. You have I'm to celebrate. I'm satisfied. I'm really happy that Cincinnati, just like, what was it, UCF a couple of years ago, will have the opportunity to claim its true national championship. Yeah, I wonder if Boise and UCF are actually kind of toasting Cincinnati. Of course they, they are. Are they bitter? Are they bitter that they kind of laid the groundwork and these guys actually got to got to make it all the way through? Well, hey, you got to beat, you got to beat, Al- just beat, Al- all you got to do is beat Alabama. That's it. That's all Cincinnati <laughs> has to do. Did, did y'all watch the Baylor Oklahoma state game? Oh yeah. Chance? I mean, mm-hmm. Oh my God, this was just college football. I mean, look, both teams tried to lose. It was a mess. It was a mess, but in the end, it was good as it possibly could be. I mean, you just, the moment that fourth down final play with that running back breaking wide and then, Oh my God, it's just the best. Um, and I, you know, I have said some harsh things about Baylor over the years, but I sure do like Dave Aranda. And his comments on the field, you'll never hear a coach talk the way he talked in the comments he made um, after the game, just immediately after the game. He's an unusual cat, that Dave Aranda. Um, Well, you want to talk about a game with two teams trending, the Sugar Bowl. Baylor, Ole Miss? Holy, wow. It's good fun. Those those are teams that are, I mean, those are two teams playing really well. That's a great game. I'm so interested in that game. Yeah, it's it's also this phenomenal contrast in coaches. Talk about Dave Aranda, whose nickname is Fence Post, coaching against Lane Kiffin, who's, you know, basically a People magazine cover every week. Um, That game's basically a pick. I mean, the the line's bouncing around one point either side. So that's going to be a lot of fun to look at. Other games, other any, any other bowl matchups catch your eye? Um, other than the big ones, I'm a little bit interested. This Oklahoma State Notre Dame to see the new Notre Dame coach. He sure has captured a lot of people's imagination straight out of the box. The 35 year old head coach at Notre Dame. Um, Going to be interesting to see whether Oklahoma. Aren't State's you surprised, Katie, given up. the Massey Peabody ratings, that o- Ohio State is only favored by six and a half over Utah? Does that make sense? According to, I know you didn't necessarily run the updated rankings, but if the game had been played last week, wasn't Oklahoma Ohio State one of your like big three teams? And I don't know where Utah is. Yeah, but that, Utah that's, was that's pretty fun. good this year, right? I know, I mean, they but were that kinda... line seems short. Uh, I, I agree, it seems short. We have we we have sung Ohio State's praises for months now since they they dropped that early game to Oregon. And then kind of below the radar, snuck way up our rankings. And then, of course, just laid an egg against Michigan. Utah is a, is a very different story. I agree. We're not showing Utah to be what Utah looks to be right now, for one. Again, this, this is a team that's gotten better over the course of the season. I mean, if you looked at just last, last week's rankings, so before Utah beat 
Oregon. Oregon. And they yep. beat the heck out of Oregon. Beat them bad, yep. Go, going into that game, we have Utah way down the down. So the, what would have been the point spread of Ohio State against Utah in, that, in a neutral field? Like 17. Yeah, I mean, you can't – there's no – I mean, come on. All of us people out there, come on. Ohio State minus six okay. and a half. Okay, I don't care me, what updating Massey Peabody's doing. It ain't going from one. 17 to six and a half. Okay, here's what's doing it, though. It's priors that are doing it. If you take priors out for uh, Utah, you get them all the way up to number seven in the country, and you get a line. Take priors out for Ohio State also. Now, I'm, you shouldn't take priors out. Don't get me wrong. But if you just want to parse it between priors and in-season performance, Ohio State comes down, and Utah goes way up. And if you take priors out, you move from a 17-point line on a neutral field to a four Point line. Just like I said, bet oh, Utah. Utah's a lock. And just, uh, just that, <laughs> the analysis without priors is that still that still factors in strength of schedule. All those kind of usual yeah, sort we, of we things. Ch- we cheat in a way. We, we internally, we call it a hybrid model because we use we use priors to evaluate strength of schedule to keep the thing kind I of see. together. If you don't but do that, that you end up with like a, teams. That's yeah, such yeah, a yeah, great analysis. It goes from seventeen to four with priors, and we see this line, which is reflecting maybe people's belief of on-field performance. People don't think of priors. Well, of, you know, it's, but Eric, it's I, I think it's a little. I think it, you know we've had this conversation a little bit in here. We're not going to have the weight on priors correct for every team. I mean, right. the optimal weight would be different on every team. And yet we use the same weight for every team uh, subject to, you know, Mm -hmm. roster and stuff like that. So I I like to think of it a little bit as a parameter in the way you forecast. It's like, well, can I ooch it a little bit? If this is full priors, I have Utah at like plus nine, zero priors. I have Utah at 17. It gives me kind of a range and I can think about where Utah probably ought to fall. If I have a reasonable story for believing that priors should count less for Utah than for other teams. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the amazing story about Utah right now is that two of their players in the past year died. I mean, the kind of stuff that they've dealt with, it's just really pretty extraordinary. Is that part of a non-stationary story? Have they kind of well, come let together? You, let me ask you just a quick question from an incentive point of view. Obviously, both teams want to win at some level. But let's say Ohio State doesn't win the game. Next year, they're going to start high enough in the preseason rankings that if they do their business, they're in the college football playoff. But imagine this game for Utah. Yeah, Utah beats Ohio State. All of a sudden, maybe in the preseason rankings, they're like, we can now legitimately go to the national championship. We don't have to. We just beat Ohio uh, State. So I'm thinking Utah has extra incentive to win this game. You're 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 playing with this idea that for lesser lesser known teams, lesser not quite as blue blooded programs, perceptions matter, and Correct. preseason perceptions matter. And something we've said about group of five teams for years now is that you kind of have to have one year under your belt of high-profile people talking about you in order to have enough credibility the next year to start high enough to be in the conversation. Correct. And, and you're saying that might even apply to Utah. Well, Utah, Utah beating powerful. Ohio State would help. Well, Utah, remember, this is their first Rose Bowl ever. Right. And it, it wasn't that long ago that they were Group of Five or whatever we call them back when they weren't in the, in the Pac-12. So – it's an interesting idea, Eric, and it, it's certainly the case that they have more of that incentive than Ohio State would, because Ohio State's going to, you know, that's what I said. No matter what, if they have a strong summer, year, they're on the playoffs. Right? I, they win the yeah. Big Ten, they're in. Yeah. Well, moreover, they just fall out of bed, and they're in the top five preseason. That's just going to happen, just because mm-hmm. of the roster. Um, but yeah, I think that that. I mean, Utah looks so good. I mean, we don't we don't really know if Oregon's any good. They don't seem to be any good, but Utah just spanked them. So. They should be more motivated than Ohio State. What's Ohio, how's Ohio State going to feel? One of the things that happens in bowl games is 
guys start opting out, and especially these programs with have, who have a lot of pro candidates lose more players. So you're you're right, Eric. That's going to be an interesting one to keep keep your eyes on. Um, all right, guys, that has been two quarters here of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. We have an interview coming up at the end of the show. Ravi Ramanini. We're going to talk a little soccer. Get caught up on soccer analytics and the U.S. men's national team a little bit at the end of the show. But we have one more open segment, open lines, pick up a few more sports before we. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Third quarter. We lost our buddy, Audie Weiner. He had to go do some Audie Weiner things. But we have the other guys here. Shane Jensen's here. Eric Bradlow is here. This is Cade Massey. Some combination of us always here. We have another open topic segment. We did college football the whole segment. You guys indulging me? Is it my birthday? What was that all about? That was awesome. Thank you. We have a short segment here. We've got a, a few other sports to cover, at least one other sport to cover. We've got to do a little NFL. Um, it was, um, you know, interesting, eventful. NFL is not boring this year. I'll tell yeah. you that. So Monday Night Football, <laughs> Buffalo. What do you think of that? Oh my God! Game of I the mean, year if the game if the year is like 1942 or something like that, right? <laughs> I mean, don't you love it when a when a city really delivers what it's supposed to deliver? What 40 no, mile an hour true. winds and bad weather? <laughs> exactly. God love them. Uh, so the Pats uh, get one over on the Bills, just like they usually do, and um, are the leading. Number one, they sitting in the number one spot, and they the are in the number right one now? seed currently, yes. which is more important than ever. With tough that schedule coming up. coming up, but yes. Well, speaking of tough schedule, the Bills roll off the friggin' Pats and go down to Tampa Bay. Is it? I, I mean, know they get Brady the and then the Pats again in another week. Well, remember, just <laughs> to, just for our analytics, folks. I mean, the Bucks played New England too. They play the AFC yeah. uh, East. We played New England in New England. Won again. Won the game, uh, nineteen to seventeen. Um, but just it says one thing to me, you know, people talk about the thing that scares me from an, you know, offense, defense, analytics perspective is I don't think any team has held the Buccaneers under 30 points this year, except for the New England Patriots. Uh-huh. I mean, maybe I'll look, maybe there's one other game, but I mean, to hold the Bucks to 19 points, they're, they're leading the yeah. NFL in scoring. I think that Rams, the Rams might have as well. Yeah, the Rams sort of beat him. The Rams back, thrashed but... him pretty. So maybe the Rams, maybe, maybe what we're saying is the Rams and the Patriots have really good defenses. And, and I mean, I think those, those are outside of just that Bucks kind of paired comparison. I think they are two of the top defenses in, in, in the NFL. I, I mean, you know, the Pats, I mean, the Rams have had a great defense for several years. I think the Pats obviously weren't so good last year, but have, have definitely kind yeah, of. Yeah, but, but I think also it probably shows is that you know, in an offensive juggernaut game right now, you're probably not going to, I mean, Mac, Mac uh, Jones and the new England wide receivers are not beating Tom Brady and the bucks wide receivers in a shootout. Mm -hmm. They're just not, that's That's not matter of fact. I don't know that they're beating Josh Allen and the bills receivers in a shootout. They're certainly not beating Patrick Mahomes and his receivers in a shootout. Right. So, you know, what you may, what we may be seeing from a perspective is, you know, now we have to put the lower bound on the number of passes that New England might do in a, in a playoff game at three. But maybe this is how they play. Maybe this is how they play Kansas City. Let's see if uh, they can run for 200 plus yards and only have them throw it three times. Maybe. And, you, you know, Patrick Mahomes can't score if he's not on the field. Yeah, I think he Patrick Mahomes, like, you know, I think part of that was the winds of like, you know, 30 plus no, miles know. per hour. I think that really took the passing game. But I think it was I mean, the part of it that was 
amazing to me is that they were so successful at running the ball. I mean, when you, you know, it's amazing yeah. to sort of see, I mean, we talk so much about how unpredictability is such a right. keystone to like right. offense. And, you know, there was no, no unpredictability. There was, it was perfect predictability there. They knew exactly what was coming and set yet still the new England kept bringing off, breaking off these big chunk runs against like, yeah. you know, a nine and 10 man box. Yeah. Incredible. Um, and Buffalo having, you know, something, I think they had like a top 10 rushing defense going into that game. So, I mean, that's the part that kind of blew me away from mm-hmm. about it all is just the success that new England essentially had mm-hmm. running the ball when everybody knew that's exactly what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I kept, I kept waiting understand. for the play action pass, but they never actually did. It they just kept handing it off. Didn't need to. Yeah. So guys, where do you think that leaves us for we're coming down to the last quarter of the season or so and it feels more wide open than any season we've had in yeah. years. And I'm, I'm curious how you think things are shaping up. I want to sh- share some Sims. We ran a couple of unabated Sims to just see kind of where things stand. The ver- the best thing about the Sim is that it, so you can drop anybody's power rankings into these Sims more or less, but the Sims going to exploit differences in schedule strength and differences in what divisions people are in. And so there, it's going to get all that structural stuff, right? And yeah. so I ran one with Massey Peabody data and I ran one with ESPN's FBI data, which has been strong relative to most systems. In fact, all systems this, this year. So just to get a look at it. So let's take a look at what it produced. Just looking at the chance of winning the Super Bowl. It's kind of a, we can look at a lot of different outcomes, but just as a heuristic chances of winning the Super Bowl. One thing that Massey Peabody gives you, well, one, that kind of doesn't matter as much whether you put Massey Peabody or FBI in there. You end up with the same top four teams and t- same top five teams. And so it shows how much is already baked in with the records. What is interesting, Kate, is that the uh, FPI appears to be slightly, only slightly flatter distribution. It's and- not if, it, at the very top, yes, but not that. I, I looked at the same thing, um, Eric, and I wanted to actually raise exactly that. So, for example, here's what I'm getting at. Yeah. If I gave you Massey Peabody has pretty much exactly 50% chance of winning the Super Bowl on the following four teams, Bucks, Cardinals, Pats, and Bills. So you get pretty much exactly 50%. How does that feel to you? If I offered you those four or the field, which side would you take? Field, field, field in a, in a heartbeat. Why are so, the Packers so low? And by that, I mean, specifically in terms of the world, uh, the, the Super Bowl probability, right? I mean, the Packers right now have actually a better record than the Bucs. Um, both are guaranteed to win their division, essentially. Yeah. But at least according to Massey Peabody, the Bucs have almost three times the probability of winning the Super Bowl. And where's that coming from? Well, I let mean, me just note, let me note that go to FPI and it's more than twice. So it's not, no, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, side, it's, it's still, uh, so I, I mean, it's not really Massey Peabody. I, I guess, let me re-ask the question. Why is the drop-off between Tampa Bay and Green Bay so much in both these models that you essentially have like, you know, two to three times the odds. I mean, if you could guarantee Tampa Bay got that bot number one buy, that would double essentially double the probability. Yeah. So it's but not anything be, more it's than not that. Be, it's not going to be guaranteed, but there's an increased probability is where it's going to come from. And I just, one, I don't even know where that increased probability comes from. Cause actually technically green Bay, I think if they are, are, are have a higher probability to buy just in terms of, so I, I, I compared to 538. 
that has almost a set, uh, almost equal probability for both the Packers and oh, really? the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl. I love five thirty eight in general, but I'll take Massey Peabody and FPI. Oh, and I, and, I, and I would too, if you told, you know, this is kind of, this is why I'm trying to kind of work out and like, I, 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 I like in general, the rankings that you, Massey PD on FBI is kind of put down here. I just, well, I think let me, let me tell you, a, a lot of it, the, a, a lot of it comes from just differences in the power rankings. And yeah. you can argue about this, but we're not as sold on green Bay. We kind of believe they're outperforming their power ranking right now. So if we had Tampa Bay and Green Bay on a neutral field, we'd, like, we'd like Tampa by five points. We have Green Bay as the ninth best team in the league. And wow. so even though they're sitting okay. in a relatively good spot now, they still have, what, four games in front of them, and they're just not going to look as, as favorable in those games as we show Tampa Bay for, for, for what it's worth. No, that, that's kind of what's interesting that the analytics was suggested because, I mean, just eyeball-wise – Green Bay and Tampa uh, Green Bay looks like, you know, I, I, I guess maybe most of the games I've watched them play, they've been very impressive in or something. That sounds, but that, yeah, I, I like the way we always talk about it this way, giving four teams 50% of yeah. the probability. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, and what I'll, I'll use definitely the not this year. It seems that well, that's kind of well, why it seems guys, to change theory year. right now. Are you telling me, given the way they're playing right now, you would take new England and Buffalo for certain over Kansas city. No, no, no. Come on. No. <laughs> or Baltimore? I mean, or ba- Baltimore? Right. Oh, Baltimore. Maybe I think Baltimore, Baltimore. I think Baltimore may be cooked, unfortunately. It's like one too many. They've been hanging on, hanging on injuries, yeah. injuries, injuries, and now True. they're smart. I, I think Baltimore's maybe a little bit cooked. But Kansas City has to get some serious probability yeah. here. Well, and- so that's you're betting a little bit on stuff we haven't seen yet, and you're betting on some kind of regime change based on it's they're playing better I, 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 i'm able to admit a strong prior on yeah they're playing case, better so. they're playing yeah. better but i, I want they're I playing want to weirder out. in the sense that they're like you know offensively very mediocre seemingly still but their defense has been absolutely stellar lately yeah, that is that is weird i want to point out that fpi has got even more probability on those four teams mm-hmm. than massive just a little bit like 57 percent. so you get if you if you if if I offered you that bet and you believe the FPI model, you'd take the four and you would think you were yeah. getting an, ed- an edge off of it. But it's the same four teams for me, the model, and they're both approximately 50%. So I think that's not a bad starting place for thinking about how the NFL is shaping up. But then you do kind of want to, I mean, I go back to the year that the Ravens won it coming out of nowhere, the second time they won it against the San Francisco. Yeah. And they just, they were nothing coming out of the season. And but Flacco had one of the greatest postseasons of all time. Absolutely. And yeah. that can, and that can happen. So I, yeah. one of the most interesting questions I think we have in front of us is like, what's the worst team record wise that you could imagine winning the Super Bowl right now? Like what, how far down would you go? Could the Bengals win the Super Bowl? No, no, I'd, I'd go pretty, I'd, I'd go down to the Cowboys, whatever they're at. Really? So yeah. FBI has the Cowboys as like the, just seven, looking at kind of looking at these likely. rankings, I think the Cowboys are the worst team that I could actually legitimately think would win the Super Bowl. Okay, so Massey Peabody has them about ninth at three point eight percent, and FBI has them about seventh at five percent. So let's yeah. let's round that together, make about four to five percent chance that they would do it, and and you and that's that's still in play according to you, still in play. So other teams that are in that neighborhood, the Titans. Yep. The problem with the Titans is that um, 
you know, where you're, you're going to have to rely on too much Tannehill with Derrick Henry out. And that mm-hmm. always gets me nervous. I, I agree so, with that. What about the Rams? The Rams are kind of in the same territory too, according to these two. Models. Yeah. So the, you could, there is an easy scenario you can imagine. This is just more anecdotal, but maybe just on the career and his quality, Matt Stafford gets hot. Mm-hmm. He plays like the great Matt Stafford. There you go. All of a sudden, Rams could absolutely. Yeah. I, I think on its best day, let's take. Let's say, suppose we say, who? Let's look at. Let's imagine every team pays to the maximum of its ability. And, and Eric, the by Rams the way, I think the, I think you're saying something yeah. even more precise. I think is interesting. It's like, what about the quarterback playing at the maximum of his no. ability? Correct. Like, who's got that Staff- right tail? Stafford. He got does. That right tail. Stafford does, and I think the Rams do. The Rams have a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball. I think the Rams would be another team that would make me worry about that fifty percent. Yeah. I think the Rams are the Rams are a legitimate Super Bowl winning team. Yeah, sure. I, but 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 and I think you know I mean kind of coming back to your comment to start off this whole conversation about how wide open things felt. I feel like there definitely are years, maybe even last year where if you'd given me the top four teams and Casey was one of them, you know, I would have maybe taken the top four teams versus the field at 50, you know, yeah, right. You right. know, whereas I feel this year does seem more wide open to me. And maybe that's kind of manifest kind of quantitatively. in the fact that I, I'm not taking, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think there's got to be, yeah, there's like, I think seven or eight teams that I think legitimately could win the Super Bowl this year. And I don't usually, I think, have that long of a list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's in the last minute or so, let's look at games this weekend that might have something to say about how it works out. We've got the Buffalo Tampa Bay game that we touched on briefly. Mm-hmm. The Bucks are favored by three there. We've got Dallas-Washington, kind of a surprisingly interesting game. Washington's won, what, like four games in a row? Oh, yeah, Washington's looking for that. Definitely. I mean, they are four-point underdogs at home, but still, it's a little bit of a test for division rival Cowboys. Guys, the, I, I had a reaction when I saw that San Francisco-Cincinnati game. First, looks like an interesting game. But then, of course, it's, it calls to mind the old Super Bowls. I think of that as a Super Bowl matchup. Yeah, I, yeah. I looked it up. Eric, Eric and Adi would appreciate that as well because this is a little old for you, Shane, but – the first of their Super Bowls was my freshman year in high school. The last of their Super Bowls was my senior year in college. And so those two games kind of bracket my high school, college life. And the Niners, of course, got the best of them both times. But I've turned into kind of a closet Bengal fan. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know why. It's, it's been involuntary. I've turned into a Joe Burrow fan. Oh, he's and, fun to watch. I was uh, that Chargers uh, that Chargers Bengals game last was week was one of the most fun games fun on game. the slate. And I, I, I will say, just like that game last week, this one for Niners Bengals has huge playoff consequences. Right, huge right. playoff consequences between two teams that are so unpredictable week to week in terms of what they're <laughs> going to do. I think the only I think the only other one that has this you know both is Steelers Vikings that Thursday night game. Very unpredictable teams. Huge yeah, playoff knows. consequences. God knows what's going to happen. Big yeah, game. That, that thing might just explode. What about Rams-Cardinals? That's the Monday night game, I think. That sounds like it a is. Game, right? Yeah, game no, over. and I mean, obviously, that's probably, you know, I mean, the, the Cardinals are kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, control their own fate as far as the number one seed goes. But if any game is going to trip them up, it's going to be this one. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm like the, the Rams to me never look good. Like the packs always look good and we think they're not as good as they look And the Rams. We keep on thinking they're better than they seem to look to me. Yeah. So let's see if the Cardinals can keep it rolling against them. All right, fellas, that's our short third quarter. We've got a fourth quarter ahead of us. We've got an interview with Ravi Ramanini, one of our favorite guests. He's going to talk a little soccer analyst. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. 
rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment since pandemic hit umpteen years ago. We are delighted to welcome back to the show, Robbie Ramanini. Many of you know Robbie, become a name in the sports analytics world. His specialty is soccer. He is VP of Soccer Analytics and Research at the Seattle, Sound- Seattle Sounders FC, the Seattle franchise in the MLS, one of the most successful in MLS history, I believe, at least recent history. Maybe not very recent history. We're going to have to hear about that. But Ravi, welcome back to the show, man. Good to see you. Thanks, Keda. Thanks for having me again on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. So. Well, always glad to have you. We're always glad to have you. I, I know you've got a lot of responsibilities out there. Uh, it's nicer, I think, for you to have this afternoon slot. You've given us some like 5 a.m. Pacific slots before, so I feel slightly less guilty catching you here Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, I think we kind of we had to move it once. The last time was uh, I think I was on the playoff game because when we agreed upon the day was we didn't know the playoff schedule and we got that day. So I had to move. So, but thanks for accommodating. Yeah. So Ravi, you've got some flexibility now. What's going on? Schedule wide open. How <laughs> yes. does it work? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. We got knocked out in the first round of playoffs and uh, it was a very uh, interesting game. Um, I, you know, we, I think our, I think our invite went out to you like either just before, or just after that game, I, th- I thought we were going to have like some late playoff conversations with you. And then it was like, Oh, <laughs> the, yeah, there goes, there goes the Sounders. Um, but it's now it's been just long enough that we can joke about it. I, I know it's it, you guys that live with these franchises live and die with these wins and the postseason. Just, it, I just can't imagine. But so I hope you've recovered a little bit. I hope you've got your legs back under you and you're, and you're ready to get, get dig into the off season. Yeah, we've already been digging into the offseason from the day, the 24th or 25th to like, like no, no, no break at all. You're just like, okay, yeah, like right, right after Thanksgiving. Yeah, we, we played on Tuesday and then uh, Thursday was Thanksgiving. So I think we basically were kind of that was kind of our period for I see that was kind of the morning uh, period, the morning period. And uh, we got right back to work on on that next week, because okay. a lot of what a lot of the success of what you see in next November, October, December, the, the roots of that or the foundation of that are laid now. This is the yeah. most important part of the, of the years. Okay, uh, we, so- we, we, we want to hear about that. We want to hear about that because that's a big claim, Mr. I'm working in November 2021 for November 2022. That's a big claim. I want to hear more about that. But let's not run past this Salt Lake game yeah. because it was news because you guys are always kind of favorites and these guys came out of nowhere. And moreover, the shot differential was some absurd thing. Like you, yeah. you guys said, what, what were the numbers again? Y'all had all these shots and then lost in penalty kicks? Yeah, so we, we had 21 shots um, through extra time, so 120 minutes, and they had zero. Uh, oh, my and- God. That's so brutal. <laughs> so, 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 Ravi, I wanted to actually build on that, exactly this game. So I want to ask a couple of questions. One is, um, well, let me ask the first one related to your 21 to zero stat. I've always wondered if an underdog strategy in soccer is pack everybody in the box, don't even try to shoot, bring it to PKs, and then we have a better shot than when we're never beating Seattle in a 120-minute game or even a 90-minute game. Therefore, our best chance is PKs, pack in the box, no one scores, we win. How, is that a viable strategy that underdogs can always take in these kinds of games? Um, I, think, I, think it's, I think it sounds good on paper. Like, it sounds very viable on paper. Like, I think, you know, but defending for 90 minutes or 120 minutes in front of your box 
uh, is not that easy. Uh, it, it, it is like, and you're basically what you're saying is that I can't make a, any mistake, but I'm really close to my goal, which means that any small mistake is penalized by a goal or a penalty or a red card. Um, I, you know, so it's really hard to pull it off. So I think a better strategy is generally to, you know, to try to keep the game further away from your goal. Um, so even if you don't think you can score, but if you can keep the ball not coming close to your goal or to your defensive third, I think that's a better way to get that result. Um, yeah, but, but I think, you know, defending in front of the goal for that long is really, really difficult. And maybe related, um, since we now have shot tracker data on analytics from, from analytics for soccer, um, if 21 shots were taken in another game, identical to this game, from the locations that you got 21 shots, what would be the expected number of goals? Is that something you look at and just say, you so, know, look, soccer's a random variable. And sometimes mm-hmm. those 21 shots would have led to six goals, and sometimes they lead to zero goals. I think, you know, one of the one of the kind of the postmortems we had was I think we had 21 shots, but we didn't have many clear cut or high value chances. I think we had like three or four really good chances, and we had one that hit the crossbar and one, you know, that might have hit the post. But but like it wasn't 21 shots that were just peppering the goal from uh, from like, you know, very close range. So I think the expected goals, different models calculated slightly differently. It was somewhere between like 1.1 and 1.7 uh, okay. based on the model and based on what you look at. So you can see one of the reasons there was that we were taking shots, but I think we weren't creating better or high high value chances, which something that is a metric that we look at internally like how many big chances, not big, but I, I didn't want to use big because that's actually the name of a metric in one of the data providers, but how many really good chances we are creating and how are we creating those? Okay. Um, and maybe one more follow-up question on this. In a soccer game, you know, Cade started out by saying, you know, you guys were the favorite in the game. Um, like, let's say, you know, a great basketball team, the one seed were to play the eight seed in a five game series. I understand soccer is one game, but in a, in a long series, you might say that basketball team has a 95% chance of winning. In soccer, just because of, we'll call them random variation, what, is, what are extreme odds in a soccer game? Can it get to 95-5 or 90-10? Or is that like just even unheard of? Like if the best team played the – if two playoff teams played each other, what's the most extreme legitimate odds would be? I, I think if two playoff teams played, I think, uh, I think our game was like probably – 60 40 or 65 35 wow. I, I think that was okay. our yeah uh maybe 70 30 if, if you're gonna go as extreme but 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 i think it's because of the how difficult it is to score a goal and you have a finite amount of time like 90 minutes or 120 minutes in this case i think like uh it's it's easy i think there is always the chance that if something like this happens, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but I, but I do think if we played this game a hundred times, probably we win a lot, you know, overwhelming number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think, you know, it was one of those games that we, we just couldn't um, get the ball inside the net. So you mentioned expected goals and that's a stat that we see now all the time. People talk about expected goals, but you also mentioned different models. Can you talk to us a little bit about the state of, 
expected goal modeling? And to what extent do you like these models? To what extent do teams, are they satisfied with this? Because it's, it's, it's an easy way to distill a lot down to one relatively advanced stat, but it's still, I gather, unsatisfying in some ways. What's, what's the state of the modeling? Uh, so I think the modeling would depends on a lot depends on the data. So uh, a lot of the data available or the overwhelming number of models you see out in the public are based on event data, which is just the touches on the ball. So I don't know where all the defenders are, but I'm purely based on my, my model takes into account um, the XY location of the, of the shot, where the shot is taken from and some other metadata like, if there was, if that was created through a counterattack, or if that was assisted, or if that was a set piece based, so okay. and if it's a if it's a header, weak foot, strong foot, so you have all this kind of metadata associated along with the location, and most of the models have this information in it. Now there are some data sets that have that tell you whether there is pressure on how many defenders were there between the keeper and the shooter. Yeah. Um, so that that'll give you another another extra layer of information, and then um, that now now there are mo- there are data sets which tell me the at what height the shot was taken, and 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 then you you have two different models. One is pre-shot model where, which is more predictive. Basically, you look at you know before the shot is taken from a location, what is the probability, and then the other is the post-shot model where the ball when the ball is crossing the goal or like near the goal mark where the keeper is keeper positioning and, and you know you can build another model that's more descriptive that you can see okay this you know explains what happened better than mm-hmm. what what might happen mm-hmm. so so those are and then there is the, the full tracking database models which have position of all the 22 players all the time so you you can do a lot more sophisticated models but i would say you get most of the gist of the in most cases, there are some extreme cases where I think having tracking data and having the more granular data will give you a diff, very different outcome. But I think for the most part, I think the location pretty is pretty important. And and um, and so, yeah. So I, I I think you know in terms of like what I feel about them, I think they they have their value. I think they can tell us something. You know, for example, like our game, we had twenty one shots. You know, if you just look at it without looking looking at expected goals, uh, like oh, we had so many shots, but but then you know when we look at it, well, we didn't create as many good, real yeah. good chances. So right, and so I think you know, I think it, it takes it to one one level down, or maybe two or three levels down. But I think mm-hmm. from there, the question the, the question always becomes is why and how. And I think yeah. as people within the team, why and why not, and how and how how we can change it. I think those are the questions we get, we have to answer. And, and that's where it goes into more of the nuance of, okay, what, what, why didn't we create better chances? Yeah, what, it's interesting. It, it connects to something that we, we, we talk to analysts in almost every sport now. It, how good are we getting at giving players credit for creating opportunities and changing situations? Because our, our first pass is kind of, what is the situation and how do they do relative to expectations for that situation, which is a sophisticated thing to do. But preceding that is they might've exerted some kind of agency over that situation. Good players create 
good opportunities. What is the state in terms of our ability to give players credit for that? You said nuance. Is it quantified model nuance or is it more like, well, we got to go look at the tape and kind of figure it out for ourselves? Well, I think there is some part of it that we can use uh, or we can create using, uh, we, we can have metrics for. I think there is definitely, you know, like, uh, you know, there's, I know, I have this, you know, one of our coaches gave me this definition once and uh, in, in a, in a play in soccer there's three things in it. It's the kind of the perception and execution and actually um, uh, just kind of the, the decision, the decision making process, like Mm -hmm. perceiving what's around you, Mm -hmm. deciding what to do and then executing Mm -hmm. what, what, whatever decision you've taken. Mm -hmm. Most of the metrics and most of the data we collect today is, is focused on the execution part, whether you executed a pass correctly or not or whether you shoot correctly or not. Perception is just knowing the, play, the understanding, quantifying, does the player know what's around him? Or, or, mm-hmm. or like, does he see the, 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 the numerical superiority on the left side versus the right side? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're getting closer to, and then the decision-making is the hard one where how do we measure whether he made the right decision or not? And, and I think with, with current data sets, I think we're, we have to use certain proxies to, to be able to, measure or even kind of have an approximate estimate of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I think as we go further, I think they, there may be, we may get more data, more fidelity in the data so where we can do those things in a more, more scientific and more mathematical way. Um, yeah, so I think for me, like th- that part is, you know, part of that, what you asked me is, is harder to measure, but I think some of it you can, like it's, it's about like, for example, going into the game, the way we play and the players we have, we designed a system or we've designed a way to create chances, a way to create attacks. Um, and we want our players, we put players in positions to, to do that. And, and obviously the opponent is trying to stop us. So we, we try to then, uh, we, the way we look at it is, did, did our, let's say a number 10, um, you know, in soccer, number 10 is generally the creative hub. Let's say a number 10, if the number 10 is in the right spot and he's the, is he getting the chances or is he getting the looks that he normally gets? Um, and if he's getting the looks, is he making those passes or is he making those connecting passes? And, and like, are we, um, you know, the, you probably heard the concept of uh, lines in soccer, like breaking lines, receiving the ball between the lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we, and, and that's a, that's an interesting, that's a concept that's very much kind of de- in ingrained in the tactical uh, not uh, the tactical part of the game and the theory of the game is mm-hmm. that you want to always have players to receive between the, the two lines of the opponent so that mm-hmm. he has multiple options to break those lines forward. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, we can look at all this now with tracking data. We can look at, are we receiving enough between the lines where we wanted to receive? And mm-hmm. then once you receive, is the player making the right, the other players around him making the right run to break the line and receive and then create a chance. So that we've gotten a lot further along in analyzing how, you know, how we how we create chances, and from there on, how we are setting ourselves up to create chances in a given game, and then evaluating: look, have we done that or not in this game? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I think we can answer that pretty with pretty good certainty now that whether we've done it or not. So, Ravi, one follow up on that. I know Eric, you're trying to get in here. Just maybe ask one follow up on that. The what is it like the interaction between the analytics and you might be able to speak about soccer more generally, but you can certainly speak about Seattle. 
the interaction in that analysis between the analytics team and the coaching staff, because they've got their own opinions on whether those opportunities are being created properly and whether they're executing the tactics as planned. And then you've got these data that say, you know, more precisely what's happening. Are they interested in that? Is that helping them see more than they saw with their eyes? How does that dialogue take place? I think it always helps. I mean, so first of all, our staff has been pretty, very interested in that. Uh, not now for years. Um, okay. I think we've had, and I've been lucky to have a staff like that work with them. So they, they, they take that. And, you know, a lot of times it, it starts a discussion um, like, okay, well, expected goals, like few, right now people don't ask me those anymore because we've gone past those discussions yep. early on is like, Oh, I don't think this is a good chance. I don't think this should be 0.7 or 0.4. <laughs> and, and so, and I think what I've learned was that then I tried to explain them like, look, this is what this model is taking into account. Now you can say that, then they'll say, well, if you look at the situation, there is this player is coming. So he's been affected by that. And, you know, like a lot of times, um, you know, when these discussions, like we go, I go to try to explain them, look, this is more like more of, I'm not looking at each individual situation. Because an average will always be wrong compared to any individual data point. But an average is good estimate yeah. of what the population looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, like expected goal is like a sophisticated average, right? So, right. Um, But even this, this concept is, is, is like fundamental to everything you're doing and yet foreign to people who don't do analytics. And so just getting this concept on the same page with everybody is, a, is, is like an important step. Oh yeah, it is. It is. And I think now it's like, you know, after like, after probably like two or three months of this every week after game, like discussing this, they've like the, the, my, when I, I noticed progress when the next thing was like, I know they will say like, I know expected goals will give me wrong number or less number for this because this is what you do. This is what the method. So now I was like, okay, now you understand what is happening there. Right. And right, I think right. I, I feel like at that point, my job is a little bit accomplished at that okay. little bit. Yeah. Right, right, right. You can move on to that's important. They can graduate to the next level and, and your dialogue yeah. can move on to the next level. Yeah, so yeah. Robbie, my question actually builds on this, but it relates to also your comment about the, you know, extremely granular, or let's call it high fidelity data that you have. So let's say you, you took the most granular data. So you have 22 soccer players on the pitch. Mm-hmm. They're all moving around. So it's not just XY data, it's XY data over time. Mm-hmm. How do you guys, whether it's through talking to experts or to the coaches, as uh, Cade said, or whether you do it purely through predictive analytics, how do you guys do feature engineering to think about how to reduce down this massive dimensional data set into something that you can actually use as a decision-oriented tool? Because in its rawest form, this data just seems to me to be, it's massive in size. It's got all kinds of things that could be useful for you. I'm just wondering how you think about that maybe kate has a yeah eric say say 30 more seconds about features what do you mean by features well for example one thing you could do is you could imagine taking let's say a given player and let's say you track him over time one thing you could measure is his maximum speed that's a feature of that person's data i could take the average speed i could take uh how much space he or she creates um so what i'm talking about is taking the raw data computing a summary measure 
and then using that summary measure to do some sort of prediction? Like, how do you actually take the raw data and do something with it to convert it into things that you can then either explain or use as predictions? And Eric, is your question, how do you decide what features to extract from the Exactly. Data? Exactly. How do they decide what features to extract? Because there's almost an infinite number given the dimensionality (laughs) of the data. And I'm wondering, it builds on your question, Kate. Do they ask coaches to think about what could be useful or do they purely use the math? Whatever's predictive is predictive. Who cares? I, I, I think this is where I think I think the answer to this is like, uh, you know, like the, the easiest answer is like it's kind of both ways. It, it goes both ways in the sense that you do get some, you know, knowing, uh, you know, coaches always and all coaches have game model or or certain set principles of how they want to attack and how they want to defend what they want their team to do. So that gives your initial cues on, um, OK, this is something that that. That's where maybe that's the first part where these are the features or this is the information we need to extract from from this raw tracking mountain of tracking data. Now, the other part is also there are some general concepts um, that the I think it's just the soccer knowledge or soccer IQ part of it where, oh, this is, you know, you it's universally accepted, like, for example, shots or, you know, there are some basic metrics that you already know that you can build a better model using a more granular data. So it's, it's two-way street. Um, one of the things like a lot of the, so the, this, this, this raw tracking data, the mountains of data, what it's really good at give, uh, is solving some questions or answering some questions which we couldn't answer with event data. A lot of times, like what the, the tactical concepts are, um, things like numerical superiority in a certain part of the field, um, whether there is like, you know, some, some really standard patterns in soccer called the third man running, uh, where, where it's the third man running is, is nothing but there is three players, uh, A, B, C, A passes to B, and then B passes back to A and finds C is making a run, and then he goes to there. And there are kind of slightly different definitions of this, but that's kind of a pattern. So you can look up for a simple way to look at it find out all a b a c patterns in in the data it's like type of thing and then tag them and you know you can get to see where where we've done all those so i think the feature engineering part is is a collaboration effort and and i think that um and that's the i think that's the only way it can be successful because i don't think you can go from just one direction and be and be very complete with it mm-hmm. so ravi I, I love that answer i i i believe strongly that that is the hallmark of a healthy um, professional organization, professional sports organization between the healthiness between the experts and the analytics staff, that there is this not just dialogue, but there's learning in both directions. And that after a few years of working together, the experts actually think a little differently for having interacted mm-hmm. with the model so much, but also that the models are different than they would mm-hmm. have been because yep. of the interaction with the experts. You mentioned this soccer IQ. I think this is something you've been thinking about some. What role would you say sport-specific expertise plays in being a good analyst? We, you know, we're, some of us are geared up as really, really high-end statisticians. I'm not going to put myself in that category. Um, and, you know, a good statistician might think he's relevant to any conversation. And he could be, but it is that much more relevant if he or she has sport level expertise, I'm curious how you see that interplay and how, what role you think the sport expertise plays? I, I think it's, 
you know, I think once you get past maybe a few low hanging fruit, I think it's very important to make real progress to support a specific expert expertise. In uh, what I'll, way? Why? In what that? way? Like I, I'll give you, you know, it's like I think it's something that I have seen through. So I finished. This was my ninth season with the Sounders, and before that, I used to work at Microsoft. So I've seen some development in myself over these nine years, and and I'll give you an example. Like so, um, probably five years ago, or maybe six years ago. If I'm analyzing the team next team we're going to play, um, I'll look at how they build out of the back. How do they play out of the back? Like you know, okay, so they play out of the back. They try to play goalkeeper plays to, or they go to play to the, to the. They they try to build out of the right side a lot. The right side of center back is used a lot, and then the right side of center back generally tries to find the number six, whatever the pattern may be. That would be my analysis maybe five or six years ago, um, but. I think if you ask me now, I see the same team. Now I ask the question: Are they building out of the right because that's what teams found to be their weak point and made them build through there? Mm-hmm. And and like, or or are they building out of the right for you know why is that? Because is it because the you know I could you know five years ago I could have gone with oh their right right sided is really good at building out of the back. Right. Um, but then I think now I ask the question, is it because their left side is so good that teams just kind of press the left sided guys so they can't mm-hmm. play out of the left and they mm-hmm. go right. And that's just one very small example. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing where to me, um, where analytics need to go to meet the, the experts in the sense that there has to be some level of um, both of them thinking similarly. I think there has to be some love, some part that has to think differently because I don't think right. If it, if it's all the same, it doesn't work. But it can't be completely different. It, either no, it works. It it works really smoothly. It works too smoothly. No one's adding yeah. any value. No one's adding any value. But I think like there has to be some common commonality, and that's the part where like I think it, it it's very important. So I see this as, for example, I have this. You know, we just talked about tracking data, millions and millions of rows of data. And then there is on the field, but the final, like you, you are extracting some piece of intelligence about how to create chances against a certain team. The, the part in the end, you just think about what is the final piece of tactic or instruction that goes to the player. Mm-hmm. It's literally going to be something like this. Hey, you start five yards out wide. You start five yards out inside. You wait for this to happen, then make this run. Mm-hmm. And that's the final instruction that, that, that is the output of all of this data. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so so you have your data, then you have your model, and then you have the output of the model. The output of the model is not going to say that, you know, directly, right? So after that, what you need for a successful analytics implementation across an organization, that's where you need the domain expert filters or like, or your analyst have those filters himself. And that mm-hmm. when this output of the model goes through those filters and then mm-hmm. goes to the decision maker or the player mm-hmm. or the coach, I think that's where it's, it's really impactful. Mm-hmm. Super and, interesting. The, there's a the consulting firm McKinsey, as they built out their people analytics practice, they, they developed a category of consultant they called translators. And it's a, it's a very, it's a common category for our mm-hmm. MBAs, for example, who sit between the data science people and the clients. And it is exactly that filter that you were just describing. And it's sufficiently important that there's a whole category of people. That's what they do. 
I, I you, yeah, right now they're even talking in soccer. They're talking about, I think NFL might have someone like, I think there are some roles that are doing this already. Like, like there are the analytics people. I don't know very well, but I've heard some job title that sounded like this. Really? That's interesting. Um, I think at the chargers or someone, I think chargers, maybe I just okay. read an article a couple of days ago. Okay. Um, but, but like, I think in, in soccer, I've heard where, where we were talking about things like in a five years from now, maybe we'll have an analytics guy, but, but the translator, the one that's the translator sitting on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think in the NFL, it was about like, who is the one who kind of gives the, like the actual, what needs to be done in the specific game or down situation. But he is now talking in the back end to all the actual data scientists and the models that are actually predicting right. this. So increasingly, teams have someone in the in the in the booth with you know like up there with the offensive coordinators, and they're on the headsets, and they've yeah. they've they're they've helped translate all of the models into the, the fourth down decisions and things like that. But also, you see, the translators in early stages are, are like the early adopters. They're the young coaches or mm-hmm. the the grad assistants who are from the football world but they are interested and can talk a little bit about analytics and they're just a little more open because they're newer to it. And they often become the bridge between the straight up analytics types and the traditional football types. Um, listen, Ravi, while we got you, we got to get a little bit from you on, on world cup. We're trying to prepare ourselves for the world cup. We're trying to bring our audience along a little bit for the world cup. The U S men's team is in qualifying mid qualifying right now. Um, I, I know you pay attention to these things. You care about these things. What's your observation so far about the, how, you know, the team missed the last world cup, which was a, a huge, yeah. how do you feel about how things are coming along so far? I think they're, they're coming along pretty good. I think, um, I think the rest of the way, if they win their home games, I think they'll be through. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they, they have a chance to win. I think other than the, maybe the game in Mexico uh, and the game in Canada, I think those are two coming up. You know, I think the, Canada game is coming up in January, Mexico, probably in March, um, if I'm not wrong. Um, I think other than those two, uh, I think they got everything under control. I think those will be the hardest games left on their schedule. Okay. But okay, so think, you're, you're talking about from an outcome perspective, you're, that's the kind of the, the level of simplicity I reason about these things. You're watching them actually play and understand what's yeah. going on. So how do you feel about the way they're playing as a team and some of the players and the coach? Your buddies with the coach, yes, you probably can't speak completely freely, but what's uh, your perspective on it? I think they're playing very, uh, I think, sound football. I think they, they are very, uh, very good. They've, they're playing, um, they're adapting of well to situations like when they played for example i think uh, when they went and played in um el salvador it was a difficult pitch to play on um and the stadium was also like i think hardly anybody gets a result there you know us uh-huh. got a draw and um and i think i think they're 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 being very they have a really good i think a squad where that that greg can throw multiple looks depending okay. on the situation okay um and then also the, the, the challenge has been that, you know, the first two, two kind of playoff of the, the, the World Cup qualifier windows have been three-game windows. Like, normally, you play two games. Yep. They played three means that you need that depth. And, um, and, like, you know, obviously, Pulisic has been injured. I think he was injured in the first window, and I, I think he hardly played in the second one. He, so, got a go- he, got, he got in there and got a goal or assisted on a goal in the second one. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think, yeah, the second one, I think, yeah. he uh, um, And so... So, like, I think missing even players like him and then, you know, Weston right. had some issue, you know, kind of a disciplinary issue. 
um, in one of the games, and then he was kind of didn't play the next game. I think I think there is depth. I think that's one thing that if you look at it, um, the the players, US players, are playing in like really big teams and in big roles, like start right. they are starting. And I saw a stat recently um, that in this 21-22 season in Europe, um, of all the of all the players coming from the Americas, meaning including South and North America, um, USA is the third in terms of goals and assists produced, like nationality of players. First is really? Brazil. Oh my gosh. Uh, huh, first, interesting. Is, f- first is Brazil. I think second, maybe USA or Argentina, very close. And, huh. and, and so, and so, yeah, so it's been very good um, cycle. For, I, think, I think, you know, the talent pool is really good. I think, I think we have a good, plan I, I i'm pretty sure they will qualify and they okay. will be good in the one okay we'll get you're getting our hopes up then eric you were going to jump in here yeah Robbie. someone asked you is there you said they played very sound football is there ever a time where you make an assessment of the competition and say look the reality is our mean level of play is not good enough we have to go for variance and therefore while we could play sound football if we i'll use your example from the the seattle uh, game that Salt Lake City. We play them a thousand times. We might win eight hundred. We should just play sound football. But if they're, yeah. if you're them, maybe you should do the opposite. So, do you yeah. ev- would you ever recommend a not sound football, high risk, high variance strategy? Oh yeah, for sure. I think I think as you said, it depends on the opponent. I, I um, you uh, like, and then there is also the other thing of how do you value a draw versus a a loss yeah. versus a draw versus a win. Um, and I think, you know, if you're going to get three points for a win and and it's probably and if you lose, lose or draw probably is the same. We have one point. So um, I think, you know, there, there are there are moments and situations. I think you, you go for the win. I think something mm-hmm. that, for example, like in MLS regular season also, um, we have a lot of um, three game weeks and where we play. Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, or Saturday, Wednesday, Sunday. Um, and two of them are away from home or one of them is away from home. Rarely we play all three away or home. So you get, you can kind of see, okay, of these three games, if the middle game is I have to fly to Houston from Seattle uh, and play the middle game, I might as well say like, maybe we play like a, a, a mixed lineup um, just to give maybe the starters rest and say, and then just to go for it. Like if you lose, uh, we, we, if you lose, we lose. But, but, yeah. But, yeah. but if we win, we get three. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you're right. and, and so like, I think there is, there are ways to do that. But, but again, I think, you know, then again, coming back to thinking about the context and how teams and the coaches and the philosophy and all that, there is also a thing about like how things are set up in a locker room and how the, the whole structure is in terms of meaning that, how do players get playing time? And, and I think like, I think a lot of times when you see like, oh, why don't they do this? Why don't they do this? I think there is a lot there that, that we don't see. And, and I think, you know, what normally the way it is set up is that there is kind of a reward system uh, in terms of who, who gets to start, who gets mm-hmm. to play. And, and if, and you don't want to break that, um, mm-hmm except unless maybe it's a final or a game that an elimination game, I don't mm. think, you know, because you want to have that, keep, keep that going for, for the group of 30 players till, till the end of the season. I think it's a, it's a great point that we don't, 
there, there are locker room dynamics, like real ones, substantive ones, things that matter that coaches have to worry about that we aren't privy to, except for the fact that now we all watch Ted Lasso, so we understand soccer locker rooms perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I Honestly, I haven't watched the show. I, oh, I, I, Robbie, come uh, on, no, uh, I, I, You know, a lot of people, I, so I watch a lot of soccer, but I just don't, you know, like I don't want to. <laughs> so um, hey, I, I know, I know uh, executives in professional sports that enjoy that show. I'd be curious to see what someone in soccer actually and, and I have you watched like the there is like another one uh it's a Mexican one uh no C- C- Club de Cuervos okay all right yeah that's that's a you watch that that one's like really fun like I all think right. it's you'll Sign see what up. yeah um, all right listen t- team you got your recommendation there give it to us one more time correct Robbie the 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 Mexican Ted Lasso was called what it's not Ted Lasso it's more I, like I, how I, things happen in a club it's oh it's called, okay, uh, I see Club de Cuervos means okay. the, the, the club of the cross, like the crow is the symbol of the team. Outstanding. Yeah. Okay. Listen, Ravi, thank you for the time, man. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Wish you the best with the off season. Thank you for the, for the time this afternoon. We'll talk to you more down the road. Yeah, thanks, Kate. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Ravi Ramaneni. Ravi is the vice president of soccer analytics and research with the Seattle Sounders FC of the MLS and a frequent guest on the show that has been two hours of wharton moneyball two hours of sports analytics here on sirius xm we do it every week for the whole team eric bradlow who's been in here with me on this last quarter for audie weiner shane jensen for maddie dats the boss man for Dion symptoms the associate boss man appreciate you guys listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports